We are going to take a look at the book of Jude. It's only 25 verses, one chapter, but yet we call each epistle a book. And so this morning we will listen to what the half-brother of the Lord, uh, regarding human relationship that is, uh, has to say to us this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. You put your finger there at Jude and I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, as we um, brace ourselves for a rather uh, graphic epistle about judgment and evildoers and uh, contending for the faith, we pray that you would help us to receive these words in a balanced way and in a way that is edifying to our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this 25-verse letter that Jude has written is actually called uh, the letter that he didn't want to write because in the preface there, Jude tells us that he preferred to write uh, to us about a different subject, an encouraging letter to Christians, but some sense of urgency had gripped Jude's heart. The gospel was under attack. Uh, deceptive false teachers and philosophies, as we have heard through John and Paul and Peter. It's the same story that the devil, the father of lies, was up to his old tricks again. And so uh, for some reason, Christians were being passive. Nobody really knows why. They were just kind of shell-shocked, and they weren't fighting for the truth. And so Jude uh, changed his mind and said, you know, I was going to write to you about happier things that I'm going to write to you about fighting for the faith. So a call to arms. He's going to pull out all the stops with graphic descriptions of the bad guys and their coming judgment, reminiscent of Second uh, Peter chapter 2. And in fact, he's relying on that chapter uh, as his inspiration. And so the efforts, of course, is to rouse Christians to stand up and fight for the faith. And we're going to talk about what that means. The letter divides nicely into three sections. Uh, We're going to take a look at that. Verses 1 through 7, if you're taking notes, a call to arms. The second point, 8 through 16, a description of the bad guys that will send shivers down your spine. And then uh, number 3, verses 17 through 25 an encouragement. He ends on an upbeat note, so that's nice there. So buckle uh, your seatbelts. These 25 verses are really meant to change your life. Jude knows he's got 25 verses to reach into your heart and get you excited to do what most people don't want to do, is stand up and, and fight. It's a lot easier just to sit back and enjoy our Christian life, which is okay to do, but we need to also be vigilant. And so he knows he only has 25 verses, so he's going to pull out the stop. So I'm just warning you in advance, he's going to use some very strong language and talk about some very sensitive issues that all cultures have to deal with. So let's dive in. Verses 1 through 7 will be our first point, a call to arms. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance, dear friends. 
Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Saints just means separated ones. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on that great day. And in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, um, point one, a call to arms the letter Jude didn't want to write. Now, sometimes the unpleasant conversations are the most necessary ones, are they not? Uh, the doc calls you into the office to discuss what your biopsy revealed, and he wants to talk about treatment options, chemo, side effects, the course your disease could take, and how you plan to pay for everything. It's not a pleasant conversation. I don't know about you, but I would rather be talking about where I'm going for summer vacation or discuss the menu for Thanksgiving, but hard conversations are the stuff of life. The fruit of a hard conversation could be healing, restoration, protection, liberation, and salvation if we have the courage to have those kinds of conversations. Jude has found the courage. Uh, Jude is up front in the opening verses. He says, hey, it's not my first choice. You know, verse 3 is very eager to write about the salvation we share in common. In other words, he's saying, if I paraphrase that, I was so looking forward to writing to you about the joys of heaven, about God's love and goodness, about his wonderful grace. But I felt a different conversation was necessary. In fact, in verse 3, the phrasing here suggests that it was somewhat unwelcome task for Jude. He says, I felt I had to write. A true pastor is a watchman as well, whether that task is a pleasant one or not. Now, he says, I want to talk to you about fighting for the faith not just enjoying it or embracing it or living it, which all three of those things is true. But it says in our text, I urge you to contend for the faith. The word contend in the original language is from the, a, a word that we get the word agonize. The Greek word is agonizomai. We get the word, as I mentioned, agonize. And here's what it means. It's an effort expanded in a noble cause. To enter a strenuous, demanding physical contest with great cost. To strain in a wrestling match where there's a lot on the line, like life or death. To engage an enemy combatant to fight with one's whole self. 
and might. So Judas exhorting us to go to battle for the faith. And what does he mean by the faith? Well, he doesn't mean your faith, your ability to hang on to what you believe or your personal ideas or your trust in God. When he says to contend for the faith, he's talking about the essential truths of the gospel that all born-again believers hold in common, moreover, that all born-again believers are entrusted with. That word is a strong word. It's God taking something valuable and entrusting it to your care and saying, these are the truths that will set men's hearts free. These are the truths that will get somebody out of eternal torment in hell and into eternal paradise of heaven. These are the truths I'm going to entrust them to you. You must guard them with the strength of your life. Now, these doctrines are about defining who God is, who Jesus Christ is, who man is, the problem of sin and, and the devil and salvation and heaven and hell. That's what he means by the body of truth that we call the faith or the gospel. And Jude says this body of truth was delivered once for all. It doesn't progress with time. I love what one writer said, the lethal mistake these men make, which is inspired by the devil himself, is that the gospel truths were not delivered once for all, but that it's a truth that is in progress, that can change from generation to generation. But to progress out beyond the boundaries of revealed truth is not to have that truth any longer. And so, uh, you know, if you walk into a museum of fine art, supposedly, and there's no guard, there's no security guy, there's no security system in place, you have to uh, conclude that there's probably nothing of value in there. Valuables are protected, worthless things are not. And so the methodology of the gospel and ministry styles and liturgies and non-essentials, they change and adapt. But the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that he died for us, he rose for us, he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge those who are alive and those who have died. All of those truths you can't mess with them. When you mess with them, you mess with a life preserver. It's no longer a life preserver if you change that. And so he says, Christians, we need to fight. Well, how do we contend for the faith? Well, he says, I'm going to tell you later in the letter, verses 20 through 23. But first, I want to tell you why it's necessary. And so he says, hey, there's an opposing team, workers against God, his truth, his kingdom. And he calls these front men false teachers. And he says, some have even managed to slip into Christian communities and do their work from the pulpit. He calls them godless. So let's take a look at this description. Well, first, the thrust of their attack is twofold, two indictments. Number one, they pervert grace. And then number two, they demote Jesus. They give Jesus a lesser role than being God and Lord 
as he is. So number one, they pervert grace. Verse four says they change the grace of God into a license to sin. In other words, here's what they would say. We're saved by faith alone, right? Right. Jesus died for all my sins, right? Right. We all sin anyway, right? It's God's grace that saves us and God's grace alone, right? Yes, true. So let's keep sinning. False. You had it. All five of those things were fine until your warped conclusion. Since we are saved by grace, let us continue in sin. And, and Jude's not the only guy who has to write about this because it's a problem in the early church. And it's a problem today. You know, it's not surprising that people would love his obligation to forgive but forget their obligation to live holy lives. And so, uh, number two, the second indictment is deny Jesus Christ as Lord. And so certainly they wanted to give Jesus a place of divinity among other uh, enlightened spirits like Muhammad or Krishna or Buddha, but he was not the embodiment of God, the absolute truth. And so uh, two things here, they would deny Jesus as Lord in their actual teaching, but they'd also deny that he was Lord by their immoral lifestyle. So Titus chapter 1 and verse 16 says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, uh, the charges have been read. Those are the two things that they teach, really. Deny the Lord and live and do whatever you want, immorally speaking. And so now he's going to give you three quick examples that show no matter where you are or who you are, unbelief and rebellion uh, will always bring death and destruction. So quickly he goes to three Old Testament examples there at verse 5. So he's going to say, I don't care if you're in the middle of God's chosen people or if you're up in heaven above with the angels or if you're in some pagan society. Those are the three places he's going to use now. Number one, Israel is verse five. He says, case in point, God's own people. How did it go there with the golden calf? It doesn't matter that he busted them out of Egypt, as your text says. It doesn't matter that a pillar of fire led them and they were so privileged God was raining down bread for them and opening up wells of living water for them. Doesn't matter. When you have sin and rebellion, even in the midst of the privileged people of God in the community of faith, you will, it says, and what? Hebrews chapter 3. Their bodies, because of their disobedience, were strewn in the desert. So Judah's just saying, in case you think that because, oh, you know, you're under the grace of God and you've got the covenant and you're chosen and all of that, unbelief and sexual immorality... Rebellion always produces the same thing. So he moves from Israel, then he says, in, up in heaven, the angels. Apparently there was some kind of a civil war caused by the head uh, angel Lucifer in pride and rebellion. Isaiah 14 and 24 talks about that. And he says, check this out. Where are those angels now? They lost their glorious positions of authority, and where are they now? They're in, in a different place, bound with everlasting chains. Because it doesn't matter if you're in heaven and you're rebelling 
and you want to be immoral, that doesn't matter. If you're an angel or if you're God's chosen people, Israel, a golden calf is a golden calf. And then he says, how about the regular Joe Schmo out in, in, in the pagan world where there is no God? Let's bring up Sodom and Gomorrah now in the godless city there. Infamous for sexual immorality, verse 7. He calls it perversion. It means a departure from normal sexual behavior. Now, uh, the sin of sexual immorality wasn't Sodom's only problem. Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, gives you a nice outline. But clearly, Jude wants to highlight the famous sin of Sodom and Gomorrah revealed as it is in Genesis 19. Uh, Jude's argument here then, by these three examples, is that denying the Lord and living in immorality never works. Whether you're chosen by God or an angel in heaven or just the average Joe living out in Sodom. Now, homosexuality was a common lifestyle in Roman times, and the false teachers advocated its acceptance but in order to do that, they needed to abuse grace and deny the lordship of Jesus. As the object lesson of God's judgment on cities where this behavior was prevalent, the natural conclusion for all time and all generations must be this. This kind of lifestyle is incompatible with Christian faith. Now, I cannot read a verse like this about Sodom and Gomorrah in this day and age and not comment further about homosexuality. So I'm going to read something that I prepared. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to move on. Five ways to think about the gospel and homosexuality. Number one. The gospel is about faith in Jesus, not about sexual orientation or certain behaviors. No one is saved by getting their life together. People don't perish because of their sexuality, but for rejecting Jesus. So to answer the question, how do I share the gospel with my gay brother? The answer is the same way you share the gospel with every other unbeliever. Number two. The gospel is that God accepts us as we are in all of our brokenness. The gospel excludes no one. Whoever so believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life regardless of our sexual orientation. Number three, the gospel is about life transformation. Though God accepts us as we are in all our brokenness, he loves us too much to let us stay that way. We become born again, so however we were born the first time is irrelevant since we must be born a second time to go to heaven. Therefore, if anybody be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God puts his Holy Spirit in us to help us keep his commands. Therefore, all forms of sexual immorality are incompatible with Christian living since through the new birth, God is morally transforming us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, the gospel came to Corinth. There were gay men there. Gay men received the gospel and were changed. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Number four, the gospel is delivered in love. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, instead he must be kind to everyone. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So when Christians are being rude or hateful or mean-spirited, you know God's word is being violated and God is not pleased. Finally, number five, the gospel is about living a life of denying self, picking up cross, and following Jesus. Whatever part of self is inconsistent with God's will and word, Jesus says that must be repressed. Whether you come from a gay orientation or a straight one, whatever behavior natural to your normal self of who you used to be prior to your second birth must be denied. Whether it's a temper, whether it's the proclivity for being dishonest or greedy, whatever it is, whatever flavor brokenness, we cannot seek to find ourselves because Jesus says you will do, by doing so you will lose yourself, but for Christ's sake to lose that self so that we can find who God created us to be. We can struggle with many areas of brokenness. It's okay to struggle. We all struggle, but we must struggle by embracing truth and limp together in the right direction toward who God made us to be in his son. Continuing on to my second point. Now, the graphic description of these deceivers, it's... Fire and brimstone, folks. Ready? 8 through 16. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. So we're back to describing the false teachers. But even the, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, which nobody really knows what that means, <laughs> did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they don't understand and what things they, they do understand by instinct, like, uh, like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you uh, without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blow, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness is reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in an un ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers, fault finders, and they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So number two. Graphic description here of these diabolical deceivers. So 
Uh, Jude is relying heavily on 2 Peter chapter 2, and we cover that in detail, so I'm just going to kind of go through and kind of summarize things. If you weren't with us for 2 Peter, you can go online or you can go on iTunes. We have podcasts. You can type in my name or you can type in Calvary the Rock and up will come all the sermons. Uh, there's 300 sermons online and 2 Peter chapter 2 is one of them. Notice the unpleasant tone. Now, the Lord speaks very gently and graciously to the general public. He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Uh, read the Gospels. Jesus is uh, the woman caught in adultery. How kind. Uh, has anybody condemned you? I've dealt with those bozos. Uh, is anybody here throwing rocks? No. Oh, I don't condemn you either. Go your way and, and, and leave your life of sin. He's, he's just called the friend of sinners. He, he speaks very kindly. Where there's harsh words like these are for his enemies. I mean, he is endlessly merciful to those who wave the white flag and want to receive truth and get right with him. But those who kind of get it, rebel, and hurt others. He has harsh words for them, and, and I don't have a problem with that. I understand that. So God is seeing red. He calls them out in the harshest of terms. He, and, and really, Jude is hoping to bank on some of the fear of the Lord because it helps a man turn from evil, as Proverbs 16.6 says. So verses 8 through 10. This sad description. So he says in verse 8, in the very same way, which links the false teachers to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's insightful. Secondly, he calls them dreamers in verse 8. That means their teaching, all of their philosophies about spiritual life have no basis in biblical reality. In other words, they're making stuff up. Their teachings are but a reflection of their own vain imaginings. In verse 9, he says they're blind with pride. And then there's that whole slandering celestial beings that nobody really knows what he means by that. But we do know the point is that these teachers were being proud and talking about things in heavenly places that they had no business doing. And so he says, even Michael the archangel restrains his words. How much more should mere man? And he says, oh, not these guys. Oh, they know everything about demons and the devil. And they talk out like, oh, we don't, we're not afraid of them. Michael the archangel showed reverence in Satan's presence. Therefore, there must be some sort of power there for Michael, whose lead command of God's hosts. He says, but they don't. They're just brute beasts. And commentator Green sums it up like this. How ironic that when men should claim to be knowledgeable, they are actually ignorant when they think themselves superior to the common man and are and are actually on the same level with animals, corrupted by the very practices in which they seek liberty and self-expression. So verse 11, uh, through these descriptions, now three names come to mind, all right? In one verse, a shout out to the perfect role models for all false teachers, three bad boys from the Old Testament, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain, you'll remember from Genesis 4, What's Cain's problem and how does he represent? 
He's the man who said, hey, I'm coming to you the way I want to come to you. I did it my way. All right? Let the record show. Let the, how does that song go? I did it my way. Let the record show. Da, 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 da. I did it my way. Whatever. Well, you thought Frank wrote that song, but actually Cain did. So Cain wants to make up his own religion. Balaam was in the ministry for money. Numbers 22 through 25, and Korah uh, of number 16 fame led a rebellion against Moses and wanted his authority and position and stirred up the people of God in rebellion. So there they are. Now, in verses 12 and 13, there are six quick metaphors of these false teachers. Number one, he says he calls them blemishes. So he says, they're, they're ugly stains. They, they, they sit at, they come to your home fellowship group. They're at the communion table. They're on the platform. They sit in the pews, but they're an embarrassment. That's what a blemish is. It means like a stain. And you just have to watch Christian television and you can understand what he means by that. Number two, he says, shepherds who only feed themselves there in verse 12. It just means that in the ministry, uh, they're in there for personal gain. They don't feed the sheep. They fleece the sheep. Number three, the clouds without rain. Let me quote Warren Wearsby on that one. Clouds that produce, promise rain rather, but fail to produce are a disappointment to the farmer whose crops desperately need water. They look like they can give spiritual help, but they fail to deliver the goods. All clouds like that do is hide the sun. And the fourth one, dead trees, there in verse 12. They're not just any trees. They're late autumn trees that ought to have fruit. So that you see this big, uh, gorgeous tree like Jesus saw a fig tree and was hungry. And he went up and there were just big, big fat leaves boasting. Oh, take a look underneath. You're going to find some fresh figs. Uh, no, because they're not rooted, but they love to show off their big leaves. He says uh, we should be able to go to a pastor for a piece of advice or something nourishing but he says you're going to go to those trees and you'll find nothing under the leaves because they're uprooted and twice dead dl moody uh, said when a man is born once he will die twice when a man is born twice he will die once so these apostates were born once so they're spiritually dead now and now their body must die as well twice dead. Now, verse 13, you have two more, so a total of six metaphors. So verse 13, he says, um, they are like the wild waves of the sea with shameful foaming. Now, we love the ocean. Contemporaries love the ocean. But back in the day, the ocean was considered unstable and, un and they called an unmanageable terror. And so Jude has in mind the dirty foam. Have you ever seen that up on washing on the seashore after a storm? Uh, just kind of foul. And it's washed up all sorts of driftwood, seaweed, and, and debris. That's what he's talking about. And then lastly, the last metaphor, wandering stars there in verse 13. Uh, 
on an ill-fated journey. So he's not talking about the stars that are fixed in orbit or planets like that. He's talking about meteors or falling stars that appear and then vanish into darkness. They can offer no guidance since they're off course themselves. In other words, they're untrustworthy. So the gist of those six metaphors, false teachers, false ideas, false lifestyles, even though it may come to us in an attractive practice, there are six things. They're unbecoming, they're unloving, they're unproductive, they're unhelpful, they're unstable and untrustworthy, and they're headed for a heap of trouble. So Jude's going to describe that now. In 14 and 15, he brings this section to a close by assuring believers, and I think he's warning unbelievers, hey, this is a slap to you, but a hopefully a slap that saves you. I think all God's slaps are, come on, they're redemptive in nature. Here's a paraphrase of 14 and 15. So Jude says, right from the beginning of human history, God started to tell us what was going to come of these guys. The seventh guy from Adam was already prophesying about these very men that the Lord would come one day with his people to judge the world and every evildoer for every evil deed, for every evil word spoken against God. In other words, God's way ahead of the game. And folks, you'll do well to keep away from these kinds of men and their seductive teachings because it doesn't go well for anybody like that in the end, nor will it go well with you for following that kind of thing. So now, beautiful, encouraging words to finish with, verses 17 through 24. He closes on an upbeat note. Let's read the end of the book, and we'll be done with a few comments. Verse 17. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and don't have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt, snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupt flesh. Then some very beautiful words to close. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. So third point, encouragement for believers who are contending for the faith. And now he gets to, and here's what I'm talking about. He begins with encouraging uh, words, reminding us that the tidal wave of false ideas and twisting the truth, the attack, the heart and soul of Christianity is supposed to happen. You're not seeing an illusion of any kind. The church isn't doing anything wrong per se. The Lord foretold that these days would come, and to be forewarned, Jude thinks, is to be forewarned. 
armed. The entire New Testament lays it out. Men will come, they will ridicule the faith and those who proclaim it. So the word in verse 17 that I think you should pay attention to is he says scoffers. Now, these Christians who have clung to orthodoxy, they haven't budged. They're being mocked. And, and believe it or not, the commentators are saying that 2,000 years ago, they were called backward, ignorant, narrow-minded, haters, and bigoted. 2,000 years ago. Wow. How many of you have ever been called by any of those names? Raise your hand. And why not the rest of you? Seriously. No, no. I want to know why somebody hasn't had a problem with you. If you are going to share the gospel in this life and tell people that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven and all other ways are false, and that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian living, you will be mocked. Homosexuality is something you can struggle with as we struggle with everything, but you cannot embrace it and call yourself a Christian. You can struggle with it, as many people do, Thousands upon thousands. So just a little bunny trail to just, I was a little concerned there that not more of you have been persecuted and mocked. Uh, we don't want to, well, you're like, okay, I'll go out and get mocked today. <laughs> no, we, we don't want you to try to get mocked. But yeah, all right, moving on. And these guys bring division. They come in, the Gnostics would assign them levels of spirituality. So they would say at the, they'd come into the home fellowship groups and they would say, you're about at level two. And then they put all the level twos together and they divide them from the rest of the church. Well, the Gnostics said, we're at level two understanding. We have a level two anointing. And that's what they would do. Those kinds of things, terrible. So here's what he says in 20 to 24. And we close with the, these ideas. He says, here's how you contend three ideas. Look inward, look outward, and look upward. I like how one writer put it like that. Now notice Jude doesn't say, go and attack against those guys. Doesn't say that. He does say you can expose them and leave them in God's hands. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against a spiritual uh, things. And so focus, here's the deal. Contending for the faith means focusing on your walk with the Lord. So first of all, he says, build yourself up. Look inside you. Build yourself up. Abide with Jesus. Continue to fellowship with his people. Worship and serve together. When we are healthy and mature in our faith, living godly, being well-versed in the scriptures, loving one another, uh, denying self, picking up cross, following Jesus, then we are the best defense for the true Christianity. He says in verse 21, pray in the Holy Spirit. It means make your prayers count by settling down and entering into a place where the Holy Spirit can prompt you. It can include praying with tongues, but it's really saying pray 
spirit-guided prayers. Not these quick, you know, yeah, 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 I always pray. I pray every day. I pray on the way to work. I pray here. I pray when I'm in the shower. Good, 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 good. But there's something to be said about developing a disciplined time when you're before the Lord, you're worshiping, you're listening, and the Holy Spirit can guide you and direct you. That's what he's talking about. Make your prayers count by doing God's work, by God's power, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, keep yourself in God's love. You know, at first you're thinking, yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to just keep reminding myself of how precious I am to God and the warm fuzzies and all of that. It, it, that's nice, but that's not what the verse means. To keep yourself in God's love really is defined by Jesus himself in John 15, 10. Listen to what he says. If you obey my commands, you remain in my love. So what he's saying is, be faithful to God. And so he's not disciplining you. You're not part of the problem all the time because you're doing your own thing and he's always having to, hey, where is he today? Oh, what do I have to do with him today? I got to bring this and that and the other thing. He's saying, keep yourself in God's love by just walking with God, cooperating with him, and you'll enjoy this unbroken fellowship. He doesn't need to discipline you. I mean, he disciplines us all as dearly loved children, but you know what I'm saying. Stay loyal to him. The prodigal son, he was loved by God. He was loved by his father, rather. But because of his, listen, his bad choices and his wandering, his father still loved him, but he didn't keep himself in his father's love. He was off doing his own thing with the pigs. It didn't mean God didn't love it. It just mean, meant that he's obscured that love and he can't enjoy that love because he's off doing his own thing. That's what it means to keep yourself in God's love. Stay in the house. Stay in service with him. Stay in relationship with him. And then finally, here he says, well, not almost finally, look out, grow in your Christian maturity, continue to... Uh, to keep ministering to others. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. The, word, the Greek phrase is to be at odds with themselves. So the false teachers have come, up, come in and upset a whole bunch of Christians. So he's writing to the mature Christians, and he's saying, to those who have been unsettled, could you guys be patient with them? Be merciful with them? They're upset. They're mixed up. They've been watching so much TV and listening to all the wrong songs and hanging out with all the wrong people, and now they're like crazy. They're still sitting there. Can you be merciful with them? Number two, he says, more vigorous group, he says, to others, snatch them from the fire. So he's saying, now there are some who, through error and lifestyle, are ready to plunge into utter ruin. Could you guys wake up? <laughs> Could you guys snatch them out of the fire? That means like, would you do something? Would you pretend like you actually care? You're watching somebody go off a cliff. And it's like, oh, well, you know, what can you do? What can you do? <laughs> hey, you know, err on the side of doing too much than doing too little. Now, you know, he doesn't mean, I mean, snatch them out of the fire. I picture kidnapping the person and forcing them to come back to church in their senses, but you can't do that. Snatch them from the fire. 
effort, closeness, diligence, courage, fire's hot, and what they're doing. And he says, by the way, watch yourself. He says, you need to hate the stained garment. He says, they're, what they're doing is contagious. So when you're getting close and you snatch them from the fire, you watch yourself because you're trying to listen to them and be open with them. You watch yourself. You hate the sin and you love the sinner. But you be careful because you're going to be close to the fire and the fire's hot and you're going to be close to contagion and you in your effort to rescue them can find yourself compromised. I saw a great docudrama on people helping somebody with just just terrible disease in a whole ward of people not being touched or loved. And, and the nurses all had protective gear on, big goggles and caps and rubber gloves upon rubber gloves. They were hugging and talking and showing care and administering the meds. But they weren't stupid. They didn't want to catch what that person had. I'll save you. I'll show you the love. But quite frankly, I don't want what you have. And Jude says, you really don't. So be careful. Final verse. He's able, by the way. So he says, if you've read my letter and you're a little down, I can understand that. But let me close with this thought. He's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his presence spotless. The word in the Greek means spotless. Not one speck. Before his throne, not with regret, but with great joy. And that just causes him to just lose it with praise. He says, to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and, and present us faultless before the throne, to him be all praise and glory and honor and thanksgiving and all these beautiful words. He just says, wow, God is able to keep my foot from slipping and make me to get over that finish line without one uh, iota of spot or wrinkle. He's just able to carry us across. And all he wants from you and me is cooperation. Cooperation. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Jude. That we just went back through so fast and furiously. We pray that these truths would stick in our hearts as we recall them by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.